Now let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel according to John, and uh, the passage this morning is rather a long one, uh, although I don't intend to read it, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, to chapter 2, verse 11. We'll read only the first verses, 1, 19 to 11. I think it should be on the church Bible at page 1063, uh, since it's been there for about two months. I assume it's still there. About two months ago in the evening services, we began what was uh, supposed to be a series on the gospel according to John with a study of the prologue, and it has now gone on, I think, for eight sermons. Um, and so, the evening series is turning into the morning series, although we're not finished the prologue to John's gospel. But that gives me the opportunity to say that John's gospel is structured like a great symphony. Um, it, has a, it has an overture to it. And as in a great symphony uh, or the music of an opera, in that overture, the themes that will be worked out during uh, the rest of the symphony are thrown out to us. And it's only as we read through the Gospels that uh, we begin to make the connections between the way in which John shows us Jesus and what he has said about the Lord Jesus in the first 18 verses of the Gospel. But here in chapter 1, verse 19, uh, we come to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where Jesus was baptizing. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I say John's gospel is like a great symphony or a great work of art. And great symphonies or great works of art, whatever the art form may be, are always held together by a variety of strands. They will have a central theme, as John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31. He's written this gospel and recorded the signs of Jesus so that we may believe in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. 
that there are various strands hold John's gospel together. And one of them is a very interesting strand that makes John's gospel different from the other gospels. As you read the other three gospels, you, you kind of get the impression they are, they are more interested in, in what happened when. But actually, it's John who's more interested in what happened when. It's John in his gospel who over and over again tells us what the time was when Jesus did things. Read through Mark's gospel, what impression do you get that whatever Jesus does, He does it immediately after the previous thing He did? But not with John. John is very careful in so many instances to pinpoint exactly when something happened. He's interested in the time when Jesus did things. Let me just read out the sermon titles that I gave to the wee fellow, as he'll always be known now after this service. And try and guess what chapter or incident in John's gospel these sermon titles refer to. And notice they've all got a time marker built into them, an evening visitor, conversation at midday, 38 years without moving, a crowded lunchtime, a day of sightseeing, a 72-hour delay, only a week left, the hour has come from morning to high noon, a Friday night undertaking, meeting first thing in the morning, successive Sunday nights, and breakfast time. There might be a prize for the winner who gets them all right, but the, the titles which are drawn from different chapters in John's gospel make the point, don't they? That in a way that's different from the other gospel writers, John wants to pinpoint times when things happened. And there's a very interesting way in which he he balances his gospel. He begins, obviously, with a prologue, and he ends in chapter 21 with a kind of epilogue. And then at the beginning of his gospel, he tells us about a week in the life of the Lord Jesus. And he ends his gospel by telling us about a week in the life of the Lord Jesus. And you'll see that if you just glance through this passage. The section we read was day one. Verse 29 brings us to day two. Verse 35, the next day brings us to day three. Verse 43, the next day brings us to day four. And chapter two, verse one, on the third day brings us through days five and six and seven. So, just as he ends the gospel with the climax of Jesus' life and ministry in his passion, so he begins the gospel by telling us, as it were, about the first week of Jesus' public ministry, beginning with his identification by John the Baptist 
and ending, in a sense, with his self-identification in the miracle that took place at Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. And to kind of understand what John is doing here, I think we also need to appreciate that in John's gospel, Jesus is always on trial, and therefore witnesses are constantly being called in by John the gospel writer to point to Jesus, to defend Jesus, and to identify Jesus until eventually the great day of judgment is going to come when Jesus will be judged and condemned, and all unknown to those who have judged and condemned Him. As He makes clear, it is in His condemnation that they are condemned, and that He will send the Holy Spirit, who will be the great witness to the Lord Jesus, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so there is this marvelous harmony of themes that bind John's gospel together. And this morning, I want us very briefly to look at what happens in the first week of Jesus' public ministry. Because here, immediately, John picks up the theme that he'd announced in the prologue to the gospel, that there are going to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus. And here there are four of them. And in a sense, these four witnesses to Jesus tell us everything about Jesus that John will later expound, and in a sense, everything about Jesus that we need to know in order to trust in Him as he says, towards the end of the gospel. And they all take place within these seven days. First of all, then, in days one and two, we're introduced to the witness of John the baptizer. And John the baptizer points to the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God. Uh, He emerges in a period of awakening, Most of us, I hope, have read David's book, Awakening, the story of the awakening, the revival that took place in this very building, 1838. William Chalmers Burns, age 23. Robert Murray McChain, just a few years older. A thousand people in the building, people weeping, people seeking, hundreds of people pouring into the kingdom from around this area and far beyond in Scotland. And something of that ardor and that excitement was obviously taking place through John's ministry. There he appeared. And actually, just as happened in 1838, so happened when John the Baptist was preaching, headquarters heard what was going on and headquarters in the 1830s, the presbyteries. In these days, the Pharisees in Jerusalem sent people to ask and to find out what is going on here. And uh, they began to ask questions. Actually, if you read the questions, the presbytery of Aberdeen was asking about what took place here. Some of those questions were rather accusatory. And these questions were certainly accusatory. Even our translators, even our best translators, who all used the ESV, of course, 
can't, don't bring out the nuance of the cynicism of these questioners. Uh, so, in my version, they are asking John, uh, uh, who are you? But what they are saying is really, you, who do you think you are? Uh, the, the way in which the question is worded in the original text suggests is there's this there's this antagonism, this cynicism. You, you, dressed like this, who do you think you are? Do you think you're the Messiah? Not the Messiah. Well, you, who do you think you are? Do you think you're Elijah? He was dressed like Elijah. No, I'm not Elijah. Then are you the prophet that uh, Moses foretold? No, I'm not the prophet Moses foretold. Well, who are you? Who are you? Who do you think you are? And there's this antagonism uh, to him. And uh, of course, he is Elijah. Jesus says he's Elijah. Malachi prophesied that Elijah would return before the Messiah came. But I think John is saying, you don't really understand, do you? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Elijah, the way you think about these people. So, who are you then? the voice. What does that conjure up in your mind, incidentally? If you go out into the street and say, the voice, to many people today, does that just mean the voice? No, I think it means the television program that I know none of you ever watch. But it it conjures up a whole crowd of contemporary associations, doesn't it? Uh, and so, people would say, well, does he mean the television program? What, what's he talking about here? And this is probably why John puts it this way. He says, I'm the voice of somebody crying in the wilderness, which is literally what he was doing. You can work it out for yourself. What I'm talking about is really what he's saying. But of course, to those who read John's gospel, to those who knew the Scriptures, who heard John say uh, that statement, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, opened up a whole file of biblical teaching in their mind. He's quoting from the opening of the second half of Isaiah's prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is who I am. I am that voice. And so, when Jesus comes and when Jesus is baptized, still with that framework of reference, He points to Jesus and says, and this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And absolutely without exception, every little boy and girl who had been in synagogue school knew exactly what He was saying. He was saying, I am the forerunner of the one who is going to bring in a new exodus, and I am in particular the forerunner of the suffering servant of the Lord about whom Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, that the one who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities upon whom would be the chastisement of our peace with whose stripes we would be healed would be led as a lamb 
to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers dumb, so he would open not his mouth. He would be stricken and smitten and afflicted because the Lord would lay upon him the iniquities of us all. And so John is saying, this one to whom I point is the Savior Isaiah promised, the Son of God who would bring salvation by taking upon himself the sins of the world. So, this is John's witness. Look, the Word of God who has been made flesh is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then something happens. The story begins to unfold further, and this takes place, you'll notice, in the day that follows, on, on day three, essentially. We have another person coming forward, somebody who's actually been a disciple of John the Baptist. Um, and interestingly, it rather looks, doesn't it, as though John the Baptist has said to some of his disciples, look, you need to follow him now, not me. And so, we're told in the verses that follow rather marvelously from verse 35 onwards, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And we know from verse 40 that one of them was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, the other one may well have been Philip, who's mentioned in the next section. And as Jesus walks by, verse 36, He says, look, there's the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard this, and they followed Jesus, and, and they, they want to speak to Jesus. But where, where are you staying, Jesus? A very natural thing to ask, isn't it? And Jesus says, come and see. Isn't that interesting? Come along with me and see. And that's a kind of little theme that runs through this whole section. Come along with Jesus and see. And look at what happens. It's, it's so true to life, isn't it? Andrew finds his brother Peter, and he says to Peter, we found the Messiah. Well, where did he get that from? Because, of course, he'd heard from John, the baptizer, what had happened that when Jesus had been baptized, John, verse 32, bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on Him. And I realized that while I was sent to baptize with water, the one on whom the Spirit descended would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the Anointed One, the Messiah the prophet that God had promised in Deuteronomy, the priest that God had promised in the Psalms, the king that God had promised to David and to his descendants, the anointed one. That's what we know Messiah means. That's what Christ means. It means he was anointed. And like pictures in the Old Testament, these three offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king were all anointed as pictures of the coming one. And now that anointing with oil has turned into the real thing. And John has seen the Spirit descend like a dove. It's kind of signal that 
out of these waters in the river Jordan, where the sins of the people have been washed into the river, the one who has been washed with the sinful water of the people's sins is the one who will emerge from the water and begin a new creation. That's the significance of the dove, isn't it? Surely. Like Noah's dove, the beginning of a new creation, this is the Messiah who's bringing in the new age, transformation, restoration. Oh, how excited he must have been. We found the Messiah, the anointed one. We may well ask, why did he need to be anointed? He was God after all. God doesn't need to be anointed by his own spirit, does he? Uh, But then we remember that John has already explained this to us. He is the Word made flesh. And it's in our flesh, in the weakness of our flesh, that he's going to fulfill his saving ministry. And he's going to do that by being helped and strengthened and led and guided and directed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And yes, there's something else that uh, amazingly John seems to have understood, that he receives the Holy Spirit as the Word made flesh, not only to be sustained by the Spirit, but to give us the Spirit. John, at the end of his gospel, we may never get there, but at the end of his gospel shows this marvelous picture of Jesus breathing His Spirit onto the disciples. And you see, that's what He does. We need to to remind ourselves again, again, again what that means. That if we are Christian believers in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, and we cannot be Christian believers unless the Holy Spirit dwells in us, Paul says in Romans 8, 8 and 9. That Spirit is the very same Spirit with whom Jesus was anointed at His baptism. How do I know that? Because there is no other Holy Spirit. There are not two Holy Spirits, one for Jesus and one for us, or a hundred Holy Spirits, one for Jesus and 99 for the rest of us in the building. No, the Holy Spirit who came upon the Lord Jesus and anointed Him is one and the same Holy Spirit. The Spirit who indwells you if you are a Christian is the one who was there all the way through Jesus Christ's ministry, which is the reason and the only reason He's able to make you like Jesus. So, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Quickly, Jesus is the Messiah of God who has come not only to be anointed, but to anoint us so that we may be brought by that anointing to know the Lord and to be transformed into His likeness. And then you notice on day four, there's a third witness comes forward. And he's in some ways the most interesting of them all. His name is Nathaniel. He may be the man who's referred to elsewhere as Bartholomew. Bartholomew may have been his, like his family name. 
the Son. But he's an interesting fellow, isn't he? Because the whole story goes on. Philip now finds Nathaniel, and look at what Philip says to Nathaniel. He says to Nathaniel, this is really something amazing has happened. We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, verse 45. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? That dump? In my day, you're from the garbles? Can any good thing come out of the garbles? That's, that's the flavor of this. In, in those days, actually, you see Nazareth even today, you know, not sure if you want to go there. It's not the Caribbean. And there's this, you know, nobody pulls the wool over Nathaniel's eyes. And then, you notice what happens? Jesus turns up. Philip says, you need to come and see. I am never going to be able to persuade you. you just, I'm challenging you. You come and see. Oh, no, 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 he comes. Fantastic. He comes. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. So, he's still, he's still somewhere there. And Jesus says, ah, he says, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Do you have any idea of what he's saying? Is, is he pulling his leg? Is he saying, I can, at a distance, I can smell you, Nathaniel. I, I know, I know, I know exactly what you're like. I can see into your heart. I, I know that when you heard about me, you said from Nazareth, that is absolutely impossible. It's a dump. And then you notice what Jesus says. And really, nobody knows what this means. I mean, absolutely nobody in the world knows what this means. Having said, ah, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or guile. He's, he's sussed Nathaniel out, hasn't he? And Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? I think those words were out of his mouth before he could stop them. He was so taken aback. It was like, it was, maybe he was being cynical, and it was, it was like he was being cynical in private, and there was Jesus, and Jesus is pastorally playing with him, isn't he? He's saying, I know more about you than you would ever imagine. And so the conversation goes on, and Jesus says to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What on earth does that mean? And the answer is nobody knows what that means. All, all we can do is guess. But the important thing is this. Whatever it meant, it, was, it got right underneath Nathaniel, right inside him. And so I think probably again, he couldn't stop the words coming out of his mouth. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. You know me through and through, and you could only know me through and through if what indeed Philip had told me about you was true. And Jesus says, you think that's something that I know you through and through? 
this is such a picture of how some people become Christians. They discover that Jesus knows them through and through, and they can't hide from Him. And Jesus says, you'll see even greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to Jacob's ladder, isn't it? That's what it's a reference to. And it's so apt because this man is, if we can get the Scottish bit out of it, he's a Jacobite, isn't he? He is an Israelite. So he's a Jacobite. And so Jesus is saying, you remember what happened to your old twisted ancestor? The ladder up to heaven and the angels, heaven being opened. He's saying, just think of that as a picture of me. Just think of that as a picture of me being the way that will bring you to God, because that's what it is. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 16, so famously, John says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what's this a testimony to? Well, it's a testimony to the fact that Jesus is that Son of God. And all of this, of course, leads by the end of the week to another kind of witness. So, there's a witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God. There's a witness that says Jesus is the promised anointed Messiah. There's a witness who confesses that Jesus is Himself the Son of God. And then on the seventh day, as Jesus brings these new disciples with Him to the wedding party on day seven, there's the witness that Jesus gives of Himself in turning the water into wine. And we all know this story. Those of you who are mothers, you can identify with Mary, can't you? You know, you've a, you've an able son and you're you're in a tizzy and everything's going wrong and you feel embarrassed maybe because Jesus had brought this crowd of disciples with him and the wine's run out. Do something, Jesus. And he, he calms her down. His woman is, I think, a little like the, the southern United States child who through adulthood will not call his mother mummy, but ma'am, 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 this is not the time. What do you mean by that? He may just mean, I'm not going to sort this mess in in full public view. You want me to to do something extraordinary here? Uh, This is not the time for me doing that kind of thing in public. And so, you'll notice actually what he does is done uh, really completely in private. He, He doesn't even explain what he's going to do. 
but certainly to the first readers of John's gospel and the hearers of the story, it was obvious what he did, turning this water into wine. And he could have turned the water into wine any way he chose. But you notice what he chose to do? He chose to turn the water that was in the jars that were used for water for the old rites of purification. And he turned that water that actually could never be any more than a sign of purification into the best wine that would give the wedding guests great joy. What the law could not do, God has done, says Paul, sending His Son in our flesh to bring salvation. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were given through Jesus, John has said in his prologue. And do you remember what he adds? And from His fullness of grace, we have received grace upon grace upon grace. Have some more wine. It's really good. That's the picture. So, what a picture of Jesus. And these witnesses being called forward so that here we are, we're just at the end of the first week, and you'll notice that these time markers stop because verse 12 of chapter 2 simply says, after this. So, here's a week in the life of Jesus. Those of us who remember the 60s, we might say, that was a week that was. And he stands already in John's gospel in full view. And if you go back and read through these verses, you'll notice, as I hinted, that there's a verb that keeps on being used. It's the verb to see. And almost subliminally, you know, almost subliminally, running through this, John, who, who never really turns around to us and says, what do you think about this? He's saying all the time, have you ever come and seen? Do you see this about Jesus? Then come and see. Have you been looking for Him? Then come and see. Do you see Him for who he is. he is. He is everything you need. Takes away your sin. Is able to give you the Holy Spirit to transform your life. Is himself the, the Son of God who wants to rule over you. Is, is one who can turn the old water that has lost its taste into a new wine that gives you a new taste for a new world? Or perhaps have you lost sight of Him because your eyes have been diverted to something else or someone else? And John is saying, oh, come on now, look at Him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face things of earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. And that's just the first week. There are many more weeks. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel and for its beautiful display of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, living in real time as a real man with real sinners and bringing real salvation and real transformation and eventually real glory. And we pray that you would turn our eyes to him, that we may believe in him and love him and follow him and ourselves by our lives and through our words join this crowd of witnesses that tell the world that he is Savior and Lord. We ask this in his name.